Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm Sean. I'm David. And we are back. Yay! Hey! We've been gone for the holiday break because we both have lives and we're supposed to be hanging out with family and all that kind of stuff. So the last time we heard from us, we did a Christmas carol. And that was fun. It was. It was a good movie. I appreciated it. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about a very different type of film, one which we were originally going to do last October, but due to both David and I being uh, enormously busy uh, for very good reasons, we had to push it back. And so now we're finally doing it. Uh, it's a movie that I originally suggested and uh, is one that David had seen and I'd never seen, and w- it involves vampires and Western tropes, and it's kind of a cool movie, and it's by Catherine Bigelow. So it's also, I believe, the first film we've done that's directed by a woman. It is, yes. So that's kind of impressive. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we need to have a quick discussion about what we've been watching because the episode we did for the Skiffy and Fanti show on Star Wars was one which David did not get to participate in because he had not seen the movie yet because he was super busy. But David has since seen that movie. I think I saw it the day after you guys uh, did the discussion. And that means, David, I need to know, what did you think about the movie? I really enjoyed it, which I, I know is going to make you cry. Oh, God, David. I just... Uh, why? Why? Uh, it was... Well, I have to say it's a film that I came to appreciate more and more after I had seen it. Uh, partly for the what, what it has clearly come to mean for so many people uh, who have been who feel brought in um and embraced by uh the 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 narratives of of this this world in a way that they had not been before and just seeing that joy uh i think is uh, has is you know has has been really quite something i i i've i've really liked that um that aspect of it so that that um that was something that uh was over and above my own experience of it just seeing what the experience for other people was uh, and how meaningful that was uh, certainly was a, a big point in its favor for me. Um, it, there were some aspects of it that I was a little bit on the fence about when um, when I was watching it, and and the, the, the big thing being what has been discussed being the the repetition. Yeah. Um, which uh, I wound up actually doing doing a couple of blog posts about because uh, as I thought about it after I'd seen it, uh, I, I saw a really stark difference here between uh, Abrams' use of repetition in particularly uh, Star Trek Into Darkness and here, where in the former it felt lazy and um, empty, uh, whereas here it was repetition with a difference and repetition with meaning. Uh, the, the, I mean, the, the Star Wars has always been about repetition. Uh, the, the all the things that, that cycle through again and again, and the original film is riffing on, I mean, it's, it's repeating the hidden fortress and, uh, the, uh, all the, you know, the, the tropes from, from the serials and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but here, uh, the, the repetition created this sense of, uh, a kind of uh family tragedy these uh this, this kind of inexorable circle of history which keeps repeating uh and people getting caught up in it whether they 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 like it or not um and the and adding resonance so that the all the the, the nice symmetries that we had i suppose you know, particularly the uh and here we we put up a spoiler alert uh the 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 confrontation uh, between 
uh, Han Solo and Kylo Ren, uh, and the way it, it, it mirrored the most infamous confrontation from Empire Strikes Back. Um, at the same time, the, also, some of the repetitions felt like, like little winks and correctives, uh, so that, uh, when we get the Triumph of the Will style, uh, uh, speech by Hux, um, for, for the, Oh, uh, God. Uh, well, <laughs> And you see here, it's kind of like, uh, uh, almost like, like Abrams, uh, saying, yes, you know, if you're going to use Nazi imagery, uh, and, and specifically invoke that film, associate it with the correct side of the conflict. Uh, which was one of the things that I've always, that's baffled me, uh, uh, about the, the original film is like, George, why on earth would you have a film about a blonde, blue-eyed hero and end with a with a triumphant awarding of the medals riddled with Nazi imagery. What the hell were you thinking? I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> I will just say that uh, I, that speech was just too much. <laughs> I could uh, every time I saw that it made me cringe. It was so like bad camp, and I don't know that it, it just. That was a moment when when I just really wish that they just cut that scene and just skipped it altogether. Just just have them suddenly flying to blow up the thing. Like I don't need this moment where you explain what's going on. Like it's okay. I'd rather be confused. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that that bothered me particularly. Ah, uh, well, fair enough. It just it seemed. I guess what it was for me was, you know, I had lots of issues with the film, but the the new actors and actresses, um, like Daisy Ridley and Boyega and um, Oscar Isaac. They, I mean, despite flaws I have, issues I have with their, their presentation and their characters and so on, their performances were, I thought, really good. I thought they were really believable as their characters. They had, you know, good, uh, repartee and all the, you know, they, they really bounced off each other. I thought there was good chemistry among them. Uh, and his character, I just, it, it just lacked that for me. It just, it seemed not on par with what the others were offering. Even what Adam Driver offered, who, like, half the movie, I, I was so confused by him. I was like, he sounds like, he sounds like, um, Javier Bardem. Cause he's got this, the way he speaks is, it's almost like he has this, uh, this Spanish accent going on. And I was utterly intrigued by that. I was like, why is he talking like this? What is going on? Turns out that's just apparently Adam Driver emotion voice, but, you know, it worked out. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's, was, yeah. that, that's still, um, it's not as noticeable as, uh, Carrie Fisher's, uh, mysteriously appearing and disappearing English accent in the first film. Yeah. I don't remember that. Uh, <laughs> and she, she has a very pronounced, um, English accent in precisely one scene, the, the destruction of Alderaan. Uh, and then, and then the rest of the time it's gone. Uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, I remember my, um, when we, we rewatched this recently, it was my, uh, my stepdaughter's, um, uh, first time seeing this film. Cause you see, her, uh, The Force Awakens was her first experience of a Star Wars movie. And, uh, I was wondering what, you know, how she would find that not having, you know, having essentially no experience of the rest of the universe. And she loved it. She walked out of that so excited. Uh, and, and we were rewatching the, so then going back, uh, and yeah, scenes like the, uh, that bit with the accent. I mean, she was just in hysterics. Uh, it's such a bizarre, bizarre moment. I mean, it's the Star Wars movie for the new generation. It feels much more attuned with this actual generation than the prequels did. 
which is, I think, why a lot of people are jumping onto it so much and perhaps in some cases may not be seeing its flaws or just don't care because they have the experience, what they're getting out of this film. Because, of course, this is, as you noted, right, it's the first film that we've had in the Star Wars universe that acknowledges that, hey, there are people who aren't blonde white dudes. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the thing is the, I mean, um, uh, the experience of the, 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 the world and the, the experience of them is, uh, despite the flaws, has kind of been the modus operandi of the, uh, or, or the, the, the virtue of the Star Wars experience from day one. Uh, because the, the original film is deep, deeply flawed in all kinds of ways. The, the, Lucas is incapable of getting a good performance unless it's someone like Alec Guinness, uh, or, well, and even there he's phoning it in, uh, or, well, or yeah, Peter, he said that before, basically. Yeah. It's a uh, or, or, for him. or Peter Cushing, who knows his way around, uh, ridiculous dialogue. Uh, the, the, the writing is terrible. The, 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 the pacing is this weird stuttering, uh, uh, clunkiness. There's, there's all, I mean, the, the difference between the first film and the, and, and Empire Strikes Back is remarkable when suddenly you see, oh, wait a minute, here we have flow. Um, so, yeah. but, but the thing <laughs> is the, uh, so the, the, the first film, uh, um, in many, in, in all kinds of important ways is not good, but, uh, it opened up this, uh, this universe. I remember as a kid, uh, you know, living imaginatively in this, this world, uh, I had all my, my, had my land speeder and my Darth Vader toys and, uh, all, all this kind of thing. And I loved living in, in it, in, in my imagination, but I never felt the need to see the film a second time. Uh, unlike, say, a little bit later, um, uh, you know, some months later when I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and suddenly that was a movie I wanted to see more than once. Right? It felt like I just seen some, like a really, a really good movie. Um, whereas the, uh, Star Wars gave me a world, but it, the, actually seeing the film felt like, well, okay, you know, I, I, I don't need to again. Uh, and, but, and I think this, this is what, um, yeah, because the, the big achievement is that, um, that, that visual creation, uh, which allows you to over, you know, in some ways look over, uh, a lot of the, the issues with, with Lucas's filmmaking, which became much more difficult to do, uh, with the, with the prequels. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. So I, obviously you, you really disliked it. Why was that? Uh, I hated the repetition. Uh, and here's why. Here, here's why I didn't like the repetition. Because I recognize, I agree totally, right? The the original movies, they've got repetition, right? Most of Lucas's films repeat ideas from other things. He just kind of takes his own spin or he tries, like with the originals, it's really about taking these archetypal ideas uh, and trying to give them, place them in that kind of repetitive mode and then just make it spaceships instead of like, you know, lightsabers instead of samurai, right? Uh, I get that. Uh, this film, when they said that they were not going to do the expanded universe, that they were going to toss it out. Uh, and, you know, that made me mad because the Expanded Universe is part of my Star Wars experience. It's something I grew up with, right? Watching the Expanded Universe stuff, reading occasionally comics, reading some of the novels. You know, there, there's a whole universe there. But you're also resenting something that's extra diegetic to the movies, right? Uh, that's the the acceptance or rejection of that has... Well, that, no, that's well, outside the films. Well, I, I get that. But, but so those those books gave us the stories of the the characters that I fell in love with that hadn't been filmed. So they were for the for a time they were official canon. We had 
really good stories are being told, flawed stories, and some garbage ones that are told in the expanded universe. And when they said they were going to throw it out, I was like, okay. Like, it pissed me off at first, but then I started to understand it. I get why. I mean, one, you're, you're being chained to an enormously complicated, overly filled out universe. I mean, it really is the expanded universe in some respects. Like, they would tell entire stories about, like, some character who sat in a corner and didn't even talk. Right. Like, we don't need that. And to have that have to affect the canon. Like, I get it. Okay. If you want to throw it out, you want to be stuck with that. There's also the problem that your main actors are too freaking old. They can't do the Thrawn trilogy because that takes place five years after Return of the Jedi. So you can't do that story. They're too old and you'd have to recast. And you know that the fans are never going to accept that. Some other person playing Han Solo, some other person. Like, it's amazing you're going to make a Han Solo movie at all to me. I don't know how they're going to do that without somebody wanting to assassinate the person playing Han Solo. Um, so they said they're going to throw it out. I kind of, I got pissed. I understood it. I was like, fine. Then that means you're going to try to tell me a new story. You're going to take something totally new. You're going to take it a totally different direction. Okay. Then take the risk and do it. But this film to me felt so much like we're not brave enough to tell our own Star Wars story. We're just going to rehash stuff we've already seen and add some new stuff on top of it. And that's, I mean, that, that to me is just late. I mean, Return of the, we've, like, I, Rachel made this great point when we did the episode. This is the third film when we've had big fancy Death Star get blown up. Yeah. The third Star Wars movie. It's bad enough that Return of the Jedi repeats that idea. I kind of understand why it's there, but it is one of those things where I'm like, yeah, but that's a flaw. That's a thing that it just, it has a, rep, a repetitive thing, right? It just amps it up, makes it bigger. But all this film is doing is saying, okay, well, how do you go bigger than Return of the Jedi? It's the Doctor Who problem. How do you go bigger than all of reality ending? Well, let's go to the reality of reality, you know, squared upside down monkey, right? It, you, you hit a point where you're getting so bigger and bigger, repeating the same idea that it actually lacks, for me, any of the, the tension. I don't think that this they're not going to blow this thing up. I know yeah, they but, are. Yeah, but that's um, uh, Abrams' interview made exactly that point. That was, uh, that he says, of course you're, you're, you're not wondering if they're going to blow this thing up. You know they're going to blow this thing up. So that's not the climax of the film. That, uh, the, uh, and that's why the, uh, you know, it's why it's not one of the protagonists who's, uh, uh you know, the, 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 who's blowing it up. It's a sec, it's a supporting character, uh, who, uh, who does that. It's, it's a, it's the, the stage setting. For what is the climax, and that's the battle between uh, Ray and uh, Kylo Ren, which that's I also the climax, uh, which I really enjoyed. So, oh, I that that whole scene made no sense to me. I, none of it makes sense. Yeah, I don't, as soon as we're talking about things making sense in a Star Wars context, I think we have to be very, very careful. Given the context of the films that have preceded it, uh, her somehow magicking up. Uh, the ability to use the force in a way that has never been seen makes no sense to me. And when people say things like, oh, well, maybe this will be explained in later movies. That's great with those later movies, but we don't have that here. We have no I, explanation. I don't need an explanation. She can do it. Uh, the, I do. The, I mean, the, the force has always been whatever the story needed it to be. Uh, it always the, has limits though. Always has well, limits. Well, yeah, but, um, they you do. Know, vague, very, always very vaguely defined. Uh, and, and there's, there's no consistency. I have, no, I, the, you know, the, the way it was emotionally presented there, um, you know, I have zero difficulty with accepting, okay, um, she's really gifted. Sure, why not? Given the lineage she probably has or whatever, 
Um, and ultimately, it's it's a you know it's a fantasy, uh, and in 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 the way that it it operates. So sure, uh, I it, I I thought it was awesome. Um, and uh, seeing um her kind of have this kind of Im- you know, embracing the heritage that, um, is, she's clearly meant to have. And, and, you know, we keep hearing about, you know, in, in other films, the incredible powers and this, that, the, um, that the characters have. I didn't see her doing anything there that, um, no, uh, it, it, it didn't bother me in the least. And it felt like, for me, it was very emotionally satisfying. Um, so yeah, um, I thought that mm-hmm. was great. Well, we just disagree. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose I, we should, oh, sorry. I will just say one other thing. Uh, like, okay, so uh, this isn't something I said in the episode because I think it was about three days after when we did the Skiffing Fanny episode. And like, the first time I saw it, I was really angry. Then I saw it the next day twice, hoping that I would see something. And then I started, I didn't see it. I went away from it. I calmed down for a couple of days and then I got pissed off again because I kept seeing articles that were like telling me how I was allowed to feel about this movie, which just that, that pissed me off for other reasons. Um, but now that we're like, you know, a month and a half, rough. Well, actually, about a month, I guess, pretty close to a month and, and some change. I will say that, uh, you know, there were a lot of things that I did love about this film. I would say that I enjoyed the first half of the film a lot more than I enjoyed the second half. The second half for me was what started to unravel things, and that was my issue. I liked the first half. I loved BB 8. I liked the chemistry between the characters. I liked some of the fan service stuff, you know, having Han and Chewie with some of that, that old dialogue we get where they, you know, they're kind of going back and forth. We have no idea what the hell Chewie says, but somehow people understand. I loved all of that stuff. I loved the feel. I, I like some of the practical effects. Uh, the, the focus on that, I'm really thankful to JJ Abrams that he limited his lens, lens flare use and focused on like physical objects, which made me happy. Um, but I will say that I felt that the, way the film ended was wrong i don't mean wrong i wrong is the wrong word uh my issue with the ending is i really think that the reveal of luke should have come in episode eight because i feel like the end of this first movie should be about the sort of bittersweet victory and the fact that we have lost and if you haven't seen the movie you're just about to get spoiled han solo dies right he's killed by his own son it's supposed to be a big deal, but I felt like the end of the movie, nobody mourns his death. Nobody really, there's no moment where people go, we just lost like one of the greatest heroes of the war against the empire. Like where, where is the moment where everyone sits down and goes, we beat them, but we lost Han. Like how do you, how do you, what are we supposed to feel? Are we supposed to feel happy because we won, but sad because we lost one of, you know, someone we love? We don't get that moment. There's no mourning. Even Darth Vader gets his own funeral in the movies and i felt like that's what the ending should have been it should have been kind of like a, a different version of what we get at the end of uh, a new hope right with where they're they're celebrating and they're getting medals but instead of medals they're all just kind of it's this bittersweet thing like maybe they're sitting around you know a bonfire like and leia tells a funny story about uh you know han like some stupid so thing you, he did in other words you wanted some repetition I wanted a different kind of repetition that instead of the victory speech, we got maybe talking about this character and giving a sense that this character really does matter and that these people are deeply affected by it and then have it to where like they're telling the stories about Han and then have for some, I don't know why R2-D2 does this in the film, but then he wakes up and he gives them the rest of the piece and they go, well, 
you know, we, we've lost Han, but we've got a soldier on now. And then we know that the next movie, the beginning, that's when she goes, goes on the journey to find Luke. And then she finds him at the beginning of the next movie. And I don't know what's the deal with Luke, but my guess is that based on what people are saying is he's fallen to the dark side or is, has super hardcore feels. I don't know, but th- I just didn't like that ending shot. I thought that was just, well, A, it takes 10 hours. It's a 10 hour shot with a damn helicopter tracking shot, which just uh, garbage. Um, but that's, I guess that's enough. It's just the, the lack of mourning. I, yeah, which, you know, uh, well, admittedly, A, uh, all, all Obi-Wan Kenobi ever got was, uh, Luke looking mopey for a few seconds on the Millennium Falcon. Uh, sure, but the, the reason why we don't get the morning is, well, A, we don't really know much about him. Uh, no. But, but we also, because TIE fighters show up and kind of disrupt their moment, right? They can't yeah. have a moment. They don't have any time to mourn. That's not the we- case here. Well, no, at the end, I, but I guess the, yeah, I mean, again, it didn't, it didn't particularly bother me. We, we had some, some visuals, uh, signals of it, but, uh, the, it, it, there wasn't a lot that was explicitly articulated. I didn't feel that we really needed it. And, uh, the, the focus was, you know, on the, you know, the, on, on Ray's journey. Um, but whatever. Um, oh, well, anyway, we can move on, yeah. I guess. That's yeah. fair. Um, so we should mention that, uh, but we're going to talk about Near Dark. We're not going to talk about other stuff much longer. But we are working on a episode on the Oscars because the list came out. And I think since we talked about Star Wars a lot longer than intended, we may skip general reactions now. <laughs> I think we can save that for the episode that we actually uh, we actually talk about them. Yep, it should be interesting. Uh, we're going to have Rachel Axe on as a special guest. And... We'll see what happens. I'm going to try to watch everything. David's going to watch as much as he can, which will probably leave you like three things. <laughs> if I'm lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. I'm, I would say I'm about, I have, I think four out of the 10 nominees done for the best picture. So no, five, five. It's five. Well, you're yeah. way ahead of me. Yeah. Uh, the Martian's pretty good, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I did, I did very much enjoy that. I actually caught in the summer. Like, yeah. I thought that was good. I, yeah, but anyway, we'll go back to that. We'll come back to that later. But we're here to talk about Near Dark, a Catherine Bigelow film, one of her early films. It is a vampire western, famously known for being a fam- vampire western. Uh, and based on the information I found about the production of this film, apparently the uh, vampire aspect of it came kind of late in the production, not in the production, excuse me, in the, the attempt to get it funded because basically they couldn't get a western made. And so they said, well, why don't you just merge it with another genre? And then my cat just ran across the thing after I told him no. Uh, anyway, so that, yeah, so they, they stuck the vampire thing in kind of as this, the last minute kind of deal. And then they got it funded and it was fun. And that's what we ended up with. So, uh, David, I picked this one originally at, for our, our Halloween month. Uh, I kind of feel great that we are, we are recording this, uh, in January instead. Cause it's, uh, it's not really a proper horror film. It is a western with vampires, which I don't. Which certainly doesn't exclude it from being a proper horror film. In fact, uh, Kim Newman calls it one of the key horror films of uh, the late eighties. That's uh, fair. That's fair. I mean, it, and it is. There is something of a tradition of uh, these uh, western horror films, and though it's also there's another um, uh, type of film that uh, is very strongly uh, present there, and that's the road film. Uh, so whether we're talking, um, Easy Rider, Thelma and Louise, uh, and so on, that, uh, is, is run, is, is, you know, a, a big trope, 
in in this movie too. Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, so yeah, because it, it's unlike the western, right? Uh, the I mean, it's, it's a very nomadic film, and one that is where we are very very conscious. I mean, it it the landscape may be that of of in some ways of the western, but uh, at least rurally, but it's also got that industrial road top uh feel and uh uh of the of of the road film and there are a number of horror movies uh that run in this vein too race with the devil brotherhood of evil sorry brotherhood of satan uh even the uh, uh, you know lesser films like the uh, the devil's reign and the car um have uh the kind of landscape uh and uh that, that we encounter in Near Dark. And don't forget one of the greatest Western horror films ever, Tremors. Yes, yes. That, also yeah. a comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Tremors. Anyway, okay, so uh, we should mention the, the plot of this movie, and so I will just describe it for folks. The basic premise is thus. You have a Midwestern farm boy who at, at night out in the town meets a mysterious girl, takes her on a drive, somewhat awkwardly tries to seduce her, and then things go weird because she starts acting strange and then he forces her to give him a kiss thinking that it wouldn't be that big a deal for her it's life and death as we learn later so she bites him and he becomes infected with something and ends up being picked up by a group of outlaws who turn out to basically be vampires and in order to survive he has to kind of live with them meanwhile his father and sister search for him through the the wilds of the west as they uh jump from town to town uh, and poor Caleb is, in his farm boyness must learn either that he uh he needs to sacrifice his morality in order to stay with these people or that he needs to go back home and we end up with a very interesting conclusion which is uh somehow his veterinarian dad can do transfusions and poof He's no longer a vampire. So that's kind of the basic premise. And I mean, in the meantime, there's violence, blood, uh, and we learn a little bit about who these vampire people are. Interestingly enough, this film never actually mentions the vampire word, if I recall correctly. No, I don't uh, think that. Yeah, they never actually say it. Um, it's pretty obvious that they are. Uh, but it should also be obvious that some of the rules of vampires aren't here. The the rules that we've come to expect, right? Like there's no stakes in the heart. Uh, there's no mention of garlic. The only thing that seems to have an effect is, uh, well, the sun. And that plays a pretty big thematic focus throughout the, the difference between sunlight and, and night. Uh, in fact, the beginning of the movie has a really interesting scene where, uh, our, our protagonist's, uh, love, as it were, uh, talks about the night almost like a living thing, this thing that is deafening. And she behaves quite strangely about the night and it's, it is really awkward and weird, and it seems on the surface really bizarre and kind of acted funky. And then it, I think when you watch the movie again, that scene really changes, and it starts to give you a sense of just how out of touch with reality this character is, because she's been living in the night, you know, killing people every single night. Uh, it it definitely makes that scene much more just off kilter, and that that I think is an interesting device. But in any case. Uh, David, where should we start? Well, uh, I think the, 
you know, perhaps as some of this, this films, um, place it, it, it was certainly, um, became, uh, something of a calling card for Bigelow and established, well, we, we have it, well, A, uh, it, it's in a bit of a tradition for her screenwriter, Eric Red, who just the year before had scripted The Hitcher. Uh, and so we could have a very nice double bill of The Hitcher and Near Dark, uh, very, very similar kinds of films. But, uh, and, uh, Bigelow, uh, showed here her, her flair, um, well, for what would become, uh, the, uh, you know, her, her trademark, the, the action scene, right? Uh, it's, it's something that she's, uh, really, really good at, uh, and, uh, becomes something, something of a specialty. But also, uh, I, I think the, for me, the, the film's best scene when our vampires descend, uh, on a bar and slaughter everyone that, uh, she could do, uh, horrific violence in an action mode, uh, in a really striking way. And, uh, the, I think that the film's I mean, though some aspects of the of the film have certainly aged. Uh, our our protagonist, well, he he gives Callow a bad name. Uh, there's 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 really very little reason to like him. Uh, but the 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 characters surrounding him, there's all kinds of neat stuff going on there. And I find this film it was a um it, it it's part of a the vampire revival that happened in the eighties. Uh, and it was a gritty, uh, no holds barred corrective, uh, to, it, it wasn't glossy in the, it had, though it has its glossy aspect. It's not, um, vogue glossy like The Hunger. It's not a comedy horror film like Fright Night. Uh, and most particularly, uh, if you look at the other vampire film that, uh, came out that same year, the Lost, Lost Boys. Boys. Yep. Uh, I mean, which is, which for me represents everything that the, all, all of the worst aspects of 80s horror. Uh, Near Dark is a, is a wonderful counterbalance to, uh, to The Lost Boys. That's, that's interesting. So I will admit that I've never seen The Lost Boys. I'm obviously a terrible, terrible person. I deserve to be punished endlessly for that. Which, well, if you know, your punishment would then be to watch The Lost Boys, because it really, it's a terrible film. It, it's just, it really is bad. It, 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 it's, it's comedy that's not funny and horror that's not scary. <laughs> I, I'm from Santa Cruz, so. <laughs> well, the there may be Boys? some resonance for you that, uh, uh, whereas, uh, I, I, I just, I, fi- I find that, that, that film a gauntlet to sit through, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, well, so some of the stuff that, you know, kind of, I think we should definitely uh, have a discussion about, um, well, A, uh, the cast of this movie, some of these people may be familiar yes, to folks. Yes. Uh, keep in mind that the reason these people are familiar is not an accident. Uh, Catherine Bigelow was, uh, well, I don't know if she was dating James Cameron at the time, but she did eventually marry James Cameron. And then I think they eventually divorced and messily, as I recall. Uh, but he, she did know him at the time that, of this filming. And, uh, James Cameron did suggest to Bigelow when she went to go get this movie made that she use some of the cast from his film Aliens, which he was filming roughly around the same time. And so she did. And so the following people actually appear in this movie. Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein, all of which appeared in Aliens. Henriksen as Bishop, Bill Paxton as, 
the weaselly dude whose name always escapes me, uh, and Goldstein as the lovely Vasquez. Hicks. Uh, yeah. Oh, Hicks, that's right, Hicks, yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, so they do appear here. Michael Bain apparently was not in this movie. Um, oh, sorry, Hudson. Hudson, I get uh, Hicks Hudson, and Hudson. Right. Hicks is, yeah. Bain, is Hid- fine. Yeah, Michael right, Bain. Right, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to see them in this movie. And one thing I found out that's on the IMDb page that I found really fascinating is apparently uh, Lance Henriksen, when he got got bored between green takes, would get in his in his car and drive around wherever they were filming, which seems to be Arizona, and just drive in the desert. And he would stay in character, in costume, in character, <laughs> and apparently got in a, in a a bit of an altercation with a police officer. Where the police officer saw him and Bill Paxton who were behaving rather strangely, and the officer apparently all like almost pulled his weapon on them, and then decided <laughs> that maybe it would have been better to send them on their way because they're too damn weird. <laughs> <laughs> so it is funny, but I will say that I am um, there. I the the I mean the casting aside, some of it is really easy, but some of the cast. I mean Hendrickson in this film is really quite something. Yeah. I thought uh, he. He's not terrifying in in the traditional sort of horror sense that in in the way that I think you get with Bill Paxton, who is ferocious and and has it, it's much more subdued for his character. He's violent, but it's always it's always like like something you don't expect to happen when he is violent. Uh, it's sort of like this thing where it's very he's very calm until the moment at which he comes against you. Whereas Bill Paxton's character is this overbearing. Uh, he's described in some of the, 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 uh, writing about this film as, as intended to be the vampire sex symbol, huh. uh, which well, is a weird way of thinking about Bill Paxton, but, uh, he's he, definitely channeling his inner Jack Nicholson and, uh, oh, yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the scene you mentioned to me before you watch the film again, right? The, the bar scene, uh, where there is a massacre. Some of, uh, I don't think they've ever put the rest of the, the film together, uh, because the version I saw is missing a scene in the bar scene where apparently Bill Paxton does actually like smash the man's head. Uh, and in the version I saw, they, they, you can tell he's smashing his head, but you don't see the smashing in, in detail. And apparently the censors did not want that because it was too violent. <laughs> I guess the, uh, the mark between, I guess, well, would have been an, that would have been an X or an NC-17 by then. Possibly an X. That's, or was it yeah. NC-17? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But it certainly would have affected whether the film could be shown in theaters because NC-17 films, as it is, almost never get shown anywhere. Well, yeah, yeah. Or, get, or get an art. Well, yeah, not not that they couldn't be shown in theaters, but they wouldn't they they, they, they wouldn't get advertising. Well, and on top of that, a lot of theaters aren't going to play them. Well, that's true. Yeah, you limit your audience, NC-17. But anyway, yeah. So I mean, I I love Henriksen's performance. He looks grizzled, and it's weird that when you think about Henriksen, if you just say give him kind of messy long hair. And he automatically looks like a southern vampire. It's true. It that's exactly what he looks like. And it's it, yeah. It certainly plays up the uh, um, the, the skeletal uh, structure of, of his face in the same way that Pumpkinhead would uh, very, very shortly thereafter. Right. The uh, how great a face he has for a horror movie. Uh, his his skull is a little bit too close to the surface. It's uh, narrow, and he's yeah. got those lines on his face. Yeah. Just yeah. naturally. I think they put a scar on his face in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think the implication is something that I thought was interesting and is something that I've seen some people talk about with this film, which is uh, we learn just from one little quick piece of dialogue that he fought for the South during the Civil War. Um, 
And so the, the implication is that, you know, he's, he's well over a hundred years old. And he, on top of that, uh, perhaps has a perspective on the world that isn't well, isn't explored here, but is heavily implied in the thematic imagery. And I saw one thing in a book on, on Bigelow's work where this film was talked about as, as really using the vampire as a way to sort of reverse the model of what we get with the traditional Western, where essentially we have our white cowboy joining a band of outlaws, metaphorically taking the, the role of, of the Indians of what we would see in a traditional cow uh, cowboy film right where the indians are sort of inhuman monsters who kill indiscriminately that's sort of what we get here but what was interesting to me that they missed out is almost everyone in this group of vampires are white in fact one of them is explicitly described as not just white but having fought for the south during the civil war and with the exception of goldstein who i'm not sure what her heritage is she plays hispanic in in aliens i don't know what she's if, if that's her actual heritage. But for the most part, it's all white people in this group. And I think that's really significant that this is a film that is taking those tropes, but the ones that are become the inhuman monsters are the very people who have excised all the Native Americans from their land. There are no Native Americans anywhere in this movie. Uh, it is very much white man's land, with the exception of one scene, or two scenes where we do see two, two uh, groups of African Americans, one a truck driver and one a, a pair of women, uh, who are, well, in both cases, they're killed. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's very yeah. significant that all the vampires are white people who are running around murdering indiscriminately. It says something very specific about the Western genre and its reapplication in the present. Well, I suppose, inter- uh, an interesting look to, when you look at the, the road movie, right? The, 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 the finding out who you are, uh, of, uh, whether it's, uh, Easy Rider, uh, or the, uh, the Rebel Angels or whatever, uh, the, um, uh, that, that same, uh, the, the, the vast majority of these films, um, that, that, that's true of those characters, right? Uh, and in fact, Lance Henriksen with his long hair, uh, and, uh, actually in some of the, 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 the looks that we get with, um, with him and, and the, uh, Jeanette Goldstein character, they could be vampire hippies. Uh, the, or at least with, with some of that, they, they have a kind of counterculture, Look to them gone bad, right? So the, the, the dark side of those, uh, uh, of, of those road films, uh, that, you know, the, uh, with the, 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 the these characters, um, you know, not now being conceived of as, as, as predatory, uh, that their freedom comes at somebody else's expense, um, in, uh, uh, in, in there. Uh, I, I should also just add to, uh, the, as, as far as the, you know, the, the, the familiar faces from Aliens, which of course the film winks at when they drive past a theater and the marquee, uh, shows that the movie that's playing there is Aliens. Oh my gosh, I missed that. <laughs> so, uh, we, uh, yeah, uh, a wink and a nod there. I mean, it, it, I think the film is interesting too in the way that it, um, I mean, it is a kind of quite rigorous, uh, look at, uh, as Kim Newman says, at the, this vampire uh, culture, how it would work, right? The and it, whereas it's true that the uh, so the you know garlic and uh, holy water and crucifixes don't uh, don't come into play. Well, in fact, uh, there is one crucifix in the movie that shows up on uh, I forget that uh, someone's gun has a crucifix on it, and it's it's never talked about, but it oh, okay. reveals that, that. The, that none of that that iconography has any influence on them yeah well or or it's simply irrelevant right it's not that um it's not like that moment in uh 
uh, Dance of the Vampires, uh, where uh, a, um, a young peasant woman holds up a crucifix to a Jewish vampire, uh, who says to her, Oi, have you got the wrong vampire? and closes in for the kill. Uh, here, the, they just, we just don't see that at all. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we don't, whereas, you know, we don't really know whether, whether it, they would matter if they showed up, but I think there's a suggestion of, um, Though these are supernatural beings, they're, they, they, yeah, they're removed from that particular, um, set of, of, um, of, of Christian iconography. So that, you know, what we get is the burnt, being burnt by the sun, like it's more like some kind of, um, disease or, or, or condition rather than, uh, necessarily a spiritual, uh, dimension, though, though, uh, though there's, yeah, clearly there's that kind of effect, uh, as well. But it, um, is having established what is critical, right? And, and, I mean, vampire mythology, uh, of course, is constantly altering, right? Uh, the, 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 the rules shift from book to book, from movie to movie. Uh, and so this film has decided to pick one particular trope, uh, suggested by the very title that, okay, they can, they live by night. Um, and, and they can't during the day, so what does that mean? Uh, and they also, they need blood, uh, that, you know, for as long as, um, uh, as, as our, uh, as our hero, as, as, uh, Caleb resists killing, but he's, he's going to die himself. Uh, he, he's going to have to, uh, kill. Uh, so the, we, we do get a good look at what it would mean to be these, these, these creatures within the rules established by this film. Well, and, and very particularly what they have to become in order to survive. I mean, if you think about all of the ca- the characters that were presented here, right? Uh, we have uh, Homer, who is a child and a man, or uh, excuse me, a man in a child's body, right? He's about nine or ten or thirteen. I don't remember how old he's, he he is, but um, we have Homer, right? Who's a sort of tragic character. He uh, presumably is older than all of them, and yet is stuck he can there's nothing he can do he can't do anything about his body uh and so that creates a somewhat very bitter and in some cases very terrifying child uh who dances on that bar in the bar scene right he's dancing to the music as they're like burning and there's all the death and blood everywhere um you also have then um jesse right the the former uh (laughs) member of this of the confederacy who is methodically set up the rules about how this whole organization is going to work. He doesn't seem to care about individuals. Uh, he's not overly cruel, uh, which gives us the Bill Paxton's character, Severin, who is almost like a sadistic cat who just goes in there to play with his food. Uh, and, and then, of course, we have, um, I forget her name, uh, the, the uh, Goldstein character, uh, who... Diamondback. Diamondback, yes, that's right. Uh, who is neither of those things, right? She's very, she does play with, uh, with Caleb at the end. Uh, at least that's the implication, I think, of what's going on there. But she's, she's much more, interestingly enough, played as motherly. Uh, she, yeah. she sort of mothers Homer a bit. Uh, she plays the role at times because it's sort of an expectation. At other times, she sort of takes care of the troop a bit. Uh, which is interesting, but then you end up with uh, our our one lone teenage 
a female character who is sort of trapped in the middle, right? She kills without showing remorse, but there's a sense to which she maybe also doesn't belong. And interestingly enough, that's what Caleb, I think, becomes the bridge uh, for how she gets out and how he gets out, right? Because Caleb can't change. He can't bring himself to murder. He just can't do he it. He can't. And I think the... Um... You know, where, where, where the film runs into some trouble is with his character, uh, and, and to a, a certain degree with Maze as well, in that the, 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 the vampire, um, the, the vampire, uh, family, um, certainly particularly is embodied by the, the characters you just listed off, I think works really, really well, um, and in all kinds of interesting ways with, you know, uh, you know, some recognizable tropes in them too, with Hendrickson as the as the patriarch and uh, you know, Goldstein's uh, Diamondback as the the den mother. Um, uh, Paxton is the biker, right? Um, but um, the how we're supposed to feel about uh, Caleb? Uh, I mean, if we're supposed to like him, uh, the film makes it very difficult. Right, given uh, the way his um, the, the the sexually aggressive way he treats uh, May in the opening scenes, uh, yeah. once he's infected and staggering home, you know your, your instinct is like ah burn, <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and then uh, subsequently, yeah, he can't bring himself to kill, but he's perfectly happy to get blood at second hand, let May do the dirty work, and then suck her blood afterwards. Uh, and though he, uh, you know, he, he can't bring himself to kill the last survivor of the bar massacre, he doesn't do anything to stop the massacre, uh, and then is all pleased later on when he, um, uh, manages to contrive the, the group's escape from the, in, in the big gun battle. And yeah. he saves everyone. And he's being, um, he was on the verge of being killed because he has yet to actually do a killing himself. Uh, he saves everyone and they all, they kind of say, well, good job. And he's, he's looking really pleased, like, yay, I'm one of them. Uh, so his, um, his, his moral compass is extremely loosey goosey. Uh, and are we supposed to, okay, um, he gets a buy because he didn't technically kill anyone? Um, you know, well, no, uh, I think that's kind of the problem because if every time, uh, May kills for him, right, he's present for most of the, the kills yeah. that he's given, right? Uh, with the exception of the first one, May kills somebody, and I don't think we ever see that. That that's the first time he sucks blood from her. Yeah, but uh, the trucker scene is a is is yeah, I think the, the the central case there, right? Where he right he's he supposed to do it. do it and he can't do it. But notice what he does when she comes in for the kill. He sees her coming, and at the moment of the kill, he turns away. He closes his eyes and he looks away. And I feel like part of that is. There's this desperation on the part of Caleb, right? He's supposed to be this goody-two-shoe farm boy. Flawed as that is, given that the very first time we meet him, he is essentially a sexual aggressor. And maybe kind of in a bad way. Uh, or maybe definitely. Yeah, in a definitely bad way. in a bad definitely way. Definitely in a bad I mean, way. I mean, he's, um, I mean, it's, you know, we may, we know that May's a vampire. He doesn't know that she's a vampire. He's with a young woman who is desperate to get home, who's pleading with him to get her home before dawn, and he deliberately stops a car and says, no, I'm not taking you there until you kiss me. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah, assault. It is assault. Yeah, it is very much assault. Uh, but I think that's also indicative of what he comes from. I mean, he is behaving how we would expect the masculine farm boy to behave, even when he's with his friends in that opening scene. Yeah. I think they're his friends. 
Uh, he, yeah, they are. Yeah. They talk to each other not quite as friends, and that that scene felt a little weird to me because some of it felt actually like legitimately aggressive. Like, but maybe that's just what they're going for. I think we, yeah, because they start off that way, and we think there's a fight about to break out, and then we realize, oh, they're just hanging. Uh, it's just the this is this is the way they this is their banter. Right, and and of course it's very clear, right, that this is the way Caleb has been been raised because. All three of them are like, hey, look at that. And they all look at the girl at May. And they basically almost have a fight over who's going to go after it. It turns out Caleb basically shoves them all away and says it's going to be him. Right. But it's it's clear that that women in where he lives are not treated the same way as men. Uh, with the exception of, interestingly enough, probably my the most fascinating uh, woman on screen, which is uh, his his sister, Sarah, <laughs> who who. Literally tells people when when uh, when Homer comes to her at the the yeah. coke machine, right? And he's like, "What are you doing up so late?" She says, "I do what I want," <laughs> and yeah. just does it with all the right amount of sass. And I loved her. I was like, "I really want more of her." <laughs> yeah, no, she 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 was a great character. I mean, and maybe we're, what we were seeing is Caleb's uh, uh, maturation. Um, the I mean, it it's uh, I'm not sure exactly what, what we're supposed to make of the fact that. Uh, so once, um, he, uh, so his accessory to murder, um, in the end doesn't seem to be supposed to be counting against him. And once Jesse, uh, sorry, once May also receives a transfusion and is rehumanized, uh, at the end, uh, that seems to, uh, wash her of all of her sins too. Uh, the, even though, you know, who knows how many people she's killed and we've seen her do, uh, do quite a few. Um, thousands. Uh, She's killed over a thousand. If she has to eat every single night, yeah. the 365 people a year. There you go. Um, uh, but, but that's okay. Um, because, uh, uh, she, uh, she, she redeems herself at the end. Um, yeah. by, um, uh, by, by, by saving, uh, uh Sarah, um, uh, and, um, and, and leaving the, uh, uh, the the other vampires, um, and I think the um, in my when I first saw the film, uh, I was I remember being a little bit disappointed by the ending, and I think maybe that that's it. The it's so committed to the the as long as it's we're focused on Henriksen and and Goldstein and Paxton uh, in in particular, and that the the, the creation of that destructive mobile community i think works works really really well yeah uh and uh and their their big finale uh is um is 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 nicely done too it's literally a standoff <laughs> yeah but yeah. Uh, but interestingly enough it's actually on a paved road and he's in a horse he's on a horse and uh the others eventually show up in a car so yeah yeah well and then we get more of um uh, uh, Bigelow's, uh, deafness with, uh, the action scenes with the, um, our, our jackknifing tanker, uh, tanker truck. Yeah, and, which, uh, the... uh, that's not how it works. But given how this film treats how daylight works, it's kind of a minor offense. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't, you know, and, uh, a action movie physics, um, are, uh, are, are dictated by dramatic need rather than, than reality. And <laughs> I think yeah. it's, um, it's striking that, uh, the, I mean the uh the action film and the horror film are th that's a very uneasy mix. Uh the uh horror and comedy um are are 
almost fused together. But the action movie and the horror movie are much, much more difficult to make work uh, coherently. And this may be one of the films that does the best job of having uh, elements from both uh, uh, coexisting. Even if we, so we're moving into the, uh, you know, the, the, the certainly the um, mind-bendingly over the top with the, uh, the 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 showdowns and explosions that we get on the high street uh, in the. Um, well, it's not quite the final scene. Uh, the, the the final showdown would be with um, uh, when uh, Diamondback and uh, and Jesse go up and smoke. Um, yeah, a lot of that I think it just doesn't it doesn't quite work as as a se- as a sequence. The whole action sequence, and I think largely because uh, so much of that sequence relies on the existence of daylight, but daylight doesn't move as quickly as. Bigelow seems to want it to move, and so that what we end up with is this 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 standoff in the middle of the night, and then you know thirty seconds later they're in the middle of the daylight, and you just have to wonder. But this whole time they've been following him in a car. How did it take him this long when it was pitch black before, and suddenly it's daylight? And we're supposed to think like this is the big crowning achievement. He's run away from them, and now they've they've made the mistake. They've come out in daylight, but no. Why would they? That's not how that would work. But you know, that's something that we simply uh, has become uh, a, a convention that is almost universal in vampire movies. Uh, the, uh, the the con- the dramatic convenience of uh, sunset and sunrise. Uh, the the way that uh, it's like a when necessary, it's like a a, a light being switched on and off. Uh, we, you know, seeing that we sometimes actually literally seeing the sun dropping like a stone, uh, over the, uh, in the horizon. We see it in the Hammer films. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we would see it in Coppola's Dracula a few years later. Uh, it's, um, uh, you know, it, and it, it, it's just, it, it comes with the territory. Uh, and, yeah. uh, so, the, so it's never uh, a question of, uh, I mean, realism obviously and, and horror movies are, are, I mean, it's, they're, um, it, it's beside the point. Uh, so whether the, the dramatic license, uh, that, that comes with that, whether it works or not, uh, is, is the issue. And I think generally the use of daylight here does in that it's, uh, you know, we'll usually have some kind of a cut and then, oh, okay, here's the daylight. Here, uh, here, now, now we're in daylight. Now we have to deal with this. And the pace is happening very, very quickly too. Um, and I, I think the uh, it just occurred to me though that the, the the final confrontation with Severin and the truck and so forth rather interestingly anticipates uh, what uh, Cameron would be doing five years later in Terminator Two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there is a whole sequence of that. It's right. Yeah, so I hadn't really thought about that. I wonder. I wonder how much of that is. I want you to test this out for me, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would. I, I, I doubt that very much, especially yeah. <laughs> uh, f- uh, five years prior. Uh, I mean, I think the where we get the, in, the the most visible intersection of the two filmmakers' sensibilities is in Strange Days. Oh uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I can see that with uh, with a script by Cameron, uh, and where the we see both. Um, I mean, also his interest in the uh, you know sort of uh, the women who are strong up to a point uh and then uh requiring a uh a male figure to come in and save the day 
okay. uh, at, at, at the end. Well, as is the case in this film, in a sense, right? Since he, he does save May, uh, interestingly enough, without her consent, the, the actual act of saving, I mean, he saves her from yeah. the sun, which presumably she consented that because she ran to him. Uh, but the act of, uh, making her no longer a vampire, right? He never asks her. He just assumes that's what she wants. Right. And we don't know whether that is actually what she wants, given that her immediate reaction is about what you'd expect from somebody who spent four years in the dark fearing the daylight, which is, I'm scared. That's what she even says. Uh, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing that, uh, that this, that so much of May's existence seems to be acts of violation, where yeah. people are taking away her consent, uh, are putting her in, in positions where consent can't be reasonably given because it's coerced. Uh, the implication being, I think, pretty interestingly, that the kinds of women who are allowed to exist in this Western, this new Western world are women like May, not women like, uh, Diamondback, who's aggressive, who, uh, it's, it's never made clear to us, did she willingly allow herself to be turned by Jesse, or did he take it? It's, it's uh, implied, it's implied that, that that's probably what he went there to do, but was it one of those situations, sort of like, uh, like with May and Caleb, or was it a thing where he really did turn her because they had a thing? It's not clear. No, though it's certainly one of the, uh, what is consistent in the film is that nobody in that movie do we see uh, or hear about become a vampire through consent. That uh, they are uniformly predatory. They uh, are very and, predatory. Uh, I, and and the yeah. way that that uh, Diamondback talks about, I mean, now she looks back. She, she's talking. Uh, she looks back fondly on her moment of conversion, but what she describes is uh is an attack which is interesting yeah i i hadn't really thought about that so so maybe it's yeah. it's it's the it's toxic masculinity is <laughs> well, essentially what this film is giving us yeah uh, we, in its we, various forms we 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 get we do get it in, in in a lot of forms and i i i guess the um in in a in a film like the the wages of fear it is uh, very explicitly presented to us as toxic, right? That's what the film is uh, is, is anatomizing. Uh, here, uh, it is, but um, how much of um, yeah? I guess uh, how aware is the movie of the toxicity of uh, some of the characters? I mean, well, I mean, obviously with our vampires, but. Uh, but even there, uh, the fact that, um, uh, Diamondback seems to, um, you know, what, what she's described, this attack that she's describing, she's, she's recounting it in, um, like, like it, it's a great, like, a great romantic moment. Yeah. And, uh, Caleb, I mean, the, the, uh, we don't really, um, the, 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 I guess the alternative we have is Caleb's father, uh, who all, you know, we, we see him, uh, I guess almost universally in a caring mode, right? He's, everything he's doing is trying to save. Um, and protect his family, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and in some cases, not his family, protecting animals. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, but he's not. Um, he's, he's. I mean, he's, he's, he's understandably angry with, uh, with, with the officials, but we don't really see him in an aggressive mode. Yeah, not the kind of aggression we get with the other male characters, whose whose aggression is unwarranted, right? Because, because you're right, because he gets very angry with the police, and I would say he is aggressive, but it's the kind of justified aggression where it's. You know, he's not violent against them, but he's kind of pissed off that, like, they seem to be, like, dragging their feet. Versus the others who, who, uh, their aggression just manifests as violence. It's just various forms of violence. I mean, even Homer, right, who, horrifyingly enough, right, we, we, he's a child, and yet we know he's not a child, and yet there's so many times in the film where we're, he's playing up his childishness, uh, usually to take someone else's life. And so that moment when he takes Sarah and that he's creepily telling her in the car, right, don't be scared, right, it's all going to be okay. Given the conversation prior, right, we know that by okay, he means I'm going to turn you. And the act that that entails is a kind of violence that is very different from the others because what he's offering is I'm going to keep you trapped in your child body forever like me. I'm going to make you like me, the tragic figure who nobody really respects uh yeah. yeah and in many ways he's the the most monstrous of them all for for that reason right the yeah uh, uh what what he has uh planned with, uh, uh for sarah the uh is more insidious than the uh, the kind of much more straightforward sadism that we get with Severin. yeah a, a little bit so um it is interesting that we haven't really talked about the bar scene, but I did think that the bar scene was was interesting. Is it the second they get there, the way that 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 scene originally felt to me was very much like we were going to not have as much sympathy for the people in the bar. The implication being they're coming to kind of a seedy, you know, bar in the middle of nowhere where it's like not really good dudes are there. They're kind of assholes, jerks, etc. Uh, but I found myself very quickly feeling really sorry for those yeah. poor these, bastards. These people don't have it coming at all, right? It's it's they horrible don't. what happens to them, but it's also uh, exhilarating uh, in that, I mean, uh, Bigelow does that scene so well uh, that it's it's horrifying, and yet it looks great, it's exciting, uh, so you, you're you kind of torn between horror and and exaltation uh, as, as you, perhaps like Caleb as you go through yeah. that scene. Well, he he has those those moments at various times, right? I mean, the the whole time Severin, well, the whole time in the opening, he he's essentially baiting another guy in hopes to piss off Caleb, right? Yeah. Uh, he even gets the guy to punch Caleb a bunch of times, uh, and Caleb does. Of course, he strikes back, and he has this shocked reaction because he knocks the guy across the room and says humorously enough, "Did I do that?" Which yeah sounds like a certain uh, television character. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I think that's really interesting that that Caleb flits back and forth, right? He he starts to become violent, but then when he realizes that that violence is going to manifest in murder, he he shies away again. Uh, he chases that kid, right? Somewhat yeah, ha- somewhat unconvincingly chases, uh, but then he catches him, and you think he's going to finally do it, and it's not like he says "Go, get out of here." He like his grip loosens, and the kid just kind of slowly backs away and then runs. Yeah. It's this very subtle, uh, this subtle act, I thought. There, I mean, there are moments in the film I felt that were really very subtle. And when the film, I think, is, is with the exception of Bill Paxton, who's never subtle, 
uh, no. in this film. He's just batshit crazy. <laughs> uh, but when the film is going for those really subtle flourishes, I felt that this is a really, a, really a very interesting film, a very good film. Uh, but I do agree that there are other aspects of this film that really fall flat. The story, uh, in some respects, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, in in I mean, especially right that the relationship between Caleb and May, which I felt was well underdeveloped. Uh, it's it's not. I it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, like they they seem attached to each other far too quick, uh, and that yeah, the, make sense her to me. her willingness to um, given his beha- behavior in the first part of the film, her willingness to protect him uh, is odd. It is uh, odd. I could understand I, it if they give us more to go on. That maybe maybe the problem with May is that uh, she doesn't feel like she has anybody in the group, right? Because she's and, and, kind so, of the outsider. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if she has motivations like Homer, uh, then okay. Uh, but I didn't get the impression that that's how we were supposed to uh, feel about it. No, I felt like it was supposed to be like a romance. And it just never really felt like a romance to me. It felt too, too creepy. <laughs> well, anyway, I think that's kind of, uh, I think that's all we need to really say about the romance. Uh, but David, before we close out, are there any, uh, other elements that you'd like to discuss about Near Dark? Well, that it is visually striking, uh, and I, I guess I, I touched on that a little bit, and uh, I said it uh, when I was mentioning the the, the Vogue glossy of, of the hunger, uh, which I don't necessarily mean as uh, to its detriment. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that are, are wonderful about that film, um, but uh, the, uh, the though Near Dark has this grimy. Uh, feel to it the uh this kind of filling station aesthetic to uh uh so much it also is really great to look at the uh i think one of the most visually beautiful uh moments is when caleb is um uh, feeding from may's wrist and they're surrounded by oil there uh yeah uh, the, the oil pumps and the uh the the blue and the lightning and the the flashing light it's it's really uh is something to look at and uh i mean i think bigelow really um uses her landscape really well it's a it's a very very pretty movie uh, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a beauty where you feel the dirt under your fingernails. Mm, yeah, it is. That, I, I can feel that. Absolutely. I mean, well, keep in mind too, like half the time the characters look dirty as hell. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, they do. Well, you notice that they seem to be, you know, stuck in the same clothes for centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, they heal though, uh, but they don't seem to heal off of the dirt. They stay burnt. They say <laughs> yeah. that burnt color. I mean, there's there's moments when I really wondered whether Adrian Pazdar as Caleb had spent most of the film wearing eyeliner because half the film he's either being burnt, uh, he's been covered in dirt, being burnt again. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I agree that the the visuals. I mean, I remember when we were talking about this on on Twitter. Uh, you know, the way in which it gives us the kind of standard Western imagery, but it's done through night. Uh, there are opening scenes that are done in the day of, uh, I believe this was shot in Arizona, uh, but it's supposed to be like Wyoming or something or Nebraska. I can't remember where exactly it's supposed to be. Uh, we get some day shots, but the night shots, right? We don't re- often get Westerns shot at night. The, the daylight is so significant to Westerns. Uh, even something like Tremors, right? Al- almost all of this, the main sequences are in the day. They're not at night. Right, with a couple, with one exception, which is with the car, uh, when it gets crumbled into the ground and then they get eaten out of it. And it's really sad. Uh, 
I, I, I like that that's the turn that we get here, right? So it, it seems very much like, well, isn't that interesting that we could take a Western? We can't do a Western, so we got to do some sort of mixture. Well, vampires would be a great way to kind of do a reversal on the traditional Western by taking away the daylight and making this focus entirely on what that you, that world looks like at night. And it's yeah. much more uh, limited because the day shots, right? We get a few brief day shots. It's almost like like the landscape is just endless, right? It just goes this infinite horizon. It just goes and goes and goes. I mean, there's mountains and there's dust and there's all this stuff. But at night, it feels much more constricted, well, much more yeah, closed. Yeah, and lots of uh, you know, sort of rail yards and uh, warehouses and uh, the uh, but but also the the, the kind of um, I mean, human presence yet, uh, but one where we that, that one passes through right it's uh um it, it it's it's still desolate uh, uh so we, we get both an 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 art uh an, an industrial uh or um manufactured desolation and the uh the the, the natural one yeah uh, and you know admittedly we we certainly have there have been uh westerns that use night to very effective uh, uh to great effect right uh, unforgiven being um sure yeah uh, and and uh in fairness we the uh the the, the western vampire film uh we can go uh, back uh you know to the likes of well billy the kid versus dracula <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh though i i think it's fair to say that this is um, the, probably the, the the most successful of the uh, the vampire westerns. Yeah, I would say it's certainly an interesting movie. Uh, I think it's deeply flawed. And if I were to compare it to most of the films we've watched, this m- may be the weakest we've watched. Uh, and I think that's just some of the direction and the editing doesn't work, uh, and some of the 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 way the story flows falls apart. But I think in terms of concepts, it's a really fascinating movie it's one of those films where i i will love a film that is maybe flawed has some bad acting or or bad plot points or whatever if it's trying to do something interesting rather than a a simple movie that fails and doesn't do anything interesting it's just trying to be just just trying to be fun but fails at being even that because i feel like that that other one right you didn't even take any chances and you still failed but this one takes some chances and where it fails isn't actually the stuff where it's taking chances. Uh, it fails on the stuff that's trying to get us to those chancy moments. Uh, yeah, yeah. I suppose yeah, my reservations would be less in the um, less at the level of of, of direction, uh, more the level of script. Uh, yeah, maybe which, it's the script and the, the editing, the way it's put together, than the direction itself. Yeah, uh, which I, I I do think is 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 really strong. Um, and uh, and I think we're you know where. I know that in in Bigelow's films, where I've had reservations, it's almost always been script uh, that that that's been the issue, rather than uh, what's um, uh, rather than what's being done with that script. Mm. Oh, that that's interesting. I wonder how much of that, uh, and we don't have time to talk about it, but just as a as a thing to think about, uh, how much of that has to do with what is still a, a big comfort conversation piece with Hollywood, which is the sexism in Hollywood that maybe she's not being offered or hasn't been at least. In the at this point, been offered the the better options. Then again, she did partly write this script, so that may not be the case for this one, but maybe some of her other films. She wrote this with Eric Red, so yeah, 
Um, and, uh, the, yeah, and who, you know, who contributed what, uh, I, 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 I couldn't say for sure. Um, uh, the, I mean, like I said, it does certainly, um, bear some resemblance to the Hitcher, uh, his, his previous film. And she would work again with, uh, with Eric Red on, uh, Blue Steel. Hmm. Okay. Uh, which is, which is also, uh, uh certainly worth seeing. Well, maybe one we have to come to at some point. It does have uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in, who is wonderful, and I love her. Well, but in any case, I just did want to say one last thing, and then we, we kind of have to close out with just a quick final thought. Uh, well, we don't really need to close out with final thoughts, because we've kind of already said our final thoughts. Um, I did think it's interesting that uh, so much of the world that we see in this is desolate. Uh, there is a moment where we see farmland, and there's nothing growing in it. The only living things that aren't people seem to be cattle or horses. But yeah, there's we, nothing and, growing like, yeah. anywhere. There are a couple and we don't trees. see those very often. Yeah, we don't see the cows very often. I think we get them maybe two scenes. The one where we see the dad uh, administering injections and uh, presumably back, uh, antibacteria or, or vaccines or something. It's not really specified. And that's just a really setup, right? The idea that, that he knows enough about medical technology that maybe he could perform the transfusion at the end of the movie. Um, which Interesting enough, it's not how transfusions work. You you can't just uh, you can't just take one person half of one person's blood, stick it in another person, and well, yeah, she yeah, goes away. <laughs> yeah, just the uh, again, I suppose it's it's something of a um uh of a trope we get in the vampire films that there, there's rarely any worry about matching blood types. Uh, it's uh, uh we think of in 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 Dracula the way that uh, Mina is given transfusions from multiple people. <laughs> Uh, and it just, uh, yeah, it's fine. Well, they've all got that one blood type that just goes to everybody, right? Is it like O or something? Or, uh, red. Or red. Yeah, blood type <laughs> yeah. red. Yeah, yeah. Well, technically it'd be blue. <laughs> yeah. Until oxygen touches it, and then it's, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm probably wrong about biology. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so I would say interesting film, flawed, uh, but I appreciate what it, the, some of the things it does with vampire. That's yeah. kind of what I would like I to say. Yeah, uh, and it does, yeah, I think it remains visually striking, um, is w- certainly one of the better vampire movies, uh, uh, from that, uh, th- that era. And, uh, uh, yeah, there, there, there is a lot still, uh, uh at work here that, um, uh, particular, I guess, uh, from the, the horror film perspective that, um, uh, makes it well worth revisiting. Oh, interesting thing that I we didn't really mention. Uh, I thought it was rather brave to have Homer smoke in this. I don't uh, know how they did it. I have no <laughs> idea how they convinced anyone to let a child smoke a fake cigarette. It's just fake. It can't be a real cigarette. A fake cigarette on screen. But I thought that was a really brave choice. And I wonder if... Um... Yeah, I wonder if that would have, uh, I'm, I'm trying to cast my mind back here, uh, if that was, would be, have been a not- as noticeable in 1987 as it is today. Uh, and I'm, mm. yeah, I, yeah, uh. Well, I wonder too if, it, how controversial will it would have been by comparison, yeah. If it would have been controversial, I, I was four in 1987, so. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, you know, and I, I saw the film, I think when it, when it first came out on, on VHS, uh, but I, uh, yeah, that's going, uh, I, I'm having to dredge my memory pretty far to remember, uh, you know, some of the, my reactions to it then, and I certainly don't remember, uh, noticing Homer smoking one way or the other, 
So yeah, can, it's can very help you explicit. I mean, there's a moment where where he does the kind of you know the, almost that Western thing where you know he's got a cigarette and he just he swipes it across something some rough surface and then lights his cigarette and he just starts smoking like it's no big deal, right? It's a very manually thing to do, but it's done in the body of this this child. Yeah, and, so I yeah. think certainly, yeah, yeah, you know, really, th- that would be one of the moments that that is that helps us remember that um, he's he's an adult. Yeah, because uh, I think there's a lot of scenes where it's hard; it, it's easy to forget uh, where he does seem childish. Well, he uh, behaves childish in some cases. Yeah, on purpose. Yeah. He does. Yeah. Well, th- where, there's scenes where he uses that as a lure, but when he's just interacting with the other vampires, uh, it's um, He's not, he's not reading old. Yeah. And I think that's just uh, some of that, I think is, is the limits of, of the actor. Um, it, it's got to be really hard to actually be a child trying yeah. to pretend to be like 90. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think for, you can see a film that, 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 it, that tackles this uh, much more, um, much more centrally, uh, a few years later when you get interview with a vampire. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting example. But it also shows does doesn't it it gives us the moment at which she is turned, I think, in interview with the vampire. So we actually see her development. Yeah, I think so. As she's uh, as she's aging, but her body is still that child body. Yeah. Which is an even more uh elaborate performance to, um for a child to do. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a Kirsten Dunst, I believe, is it? Yeah. Yeah. It is, so yeah. but in any case May yeah, come back another to that story. someday. Yeah. Um, so, any case, uh, so yeah, so we've done this film. Uh, our next film, uh, well, our, excuse me, our next episode will technically probably be the Oscar episode because I think, I think we have to do that in the next two weeks. <laughs> so, uh, so, so we so we actually talk about them before the the awards are handed out. Right. Exactly. So the next episode will be an Oscar discussion episode, and then after that, we are finally catching up on our. Our films from last year, which is going to end with High Noon. So another Western. Another Western. Interestingly enough, by the way, didn't do that on purpose. Uh, did not realize when I picked Near Dark that it was a Western until after I picked it and you told me so. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we'll do High Noon and then we go back to whatever David decides to pick for us at that point. And you won't know what it is until we record High Noon. That's so, right. It's a deep secret. Very deep. Very deep. So thanks very much, David, for coming back on and talking with me, as always. No, thank you, Sean. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. If you've got thoughts, go to totallypretentious.com. Let us know. Uh, On that note, that's it. We're going away. Bye. Bye. Bye.